Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China's biggest political meeting in a decade is a chance for Xi Jinping to consolidate his power. The 20th People's Congress is full of carefully worded statements about Mr. Xi's wonderful contributions towards building a country which works in harmony with a Marxist-Leninist ideology. However, some important topics are unlikely to be discussed openly. These include China's economic problems, its low prestige internationally, and its wolf warrior approach to diplomacy. It's good to have an expert on hand this week to help us understand this complex event. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Holly Snape, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow, who's very well placed to analyze China's politics. Holly, thanks for joining us on China in Context. Hi, Duncan, thanks for having me. Now, a few years ago, you were in Beijing to watch the Congress, and you even had a role in translating the official documents from Mandarin into English. Tell us what the atmosphere was like at the event. Yeah, so that was in 2017. It was five years ago, and it was on the first day of the Congress, which is when the top party leader, Xi Jinping, who you've mentioned, gives this big speech. And so the Congress, it all happens in the Great Hall of the People, which is this imposing grand building in the center of Beijing. And on the morning of that speech, there's about 2,000 odd delegates who are being bussed in to attend. And I said there was a kind of buzz as people first arrived and seemed genuinely quite excited to be there. But it was also a bit tense, maybe because there was kind of airport security at the doors as you go in and so on. But the whole thing is meticulously planned out to the last detail. And then I would say that the atmosphere changed quite palpably as everyone kind of entered the auditorium. So everyone became really quiet and it's almost like there was a tacit understanding that you sort of shouldn't be making any sudden movements or nipping off to the loo or something. But then there comes this mix of solemnity and pageantry. So there's this like jovial tune that the top leaders always come into on this kind of an occasion. And then there's a minute silence for a select few of the deceased revolutionaries, and it's only a select few. And then the PLA band plays the national anthem. And I'd say what all of this kind of creates is an atmosphere of awe that leads up to the main event, which is the party leader's speech. And in 2017, that was a three hour long one. As you say, in 2017, it was quite long. Uh, in 2022, it was a bit shorter, nearly uh, two hours, but there was still quite a lot of that pageantry, uh, which I saw on the television coverage, uh, the People's Liberation Army Band and so on. A lot of the delegates also were wearing masks this year. I mean, people say there's no real forum for discussion or debate within the Congress because of this formality. Everything's very carefully choreographed. What's your view? Yeah, absolutely. I would say this Congress is not about debating decisions. It's about performing a legitimating role for the party. So it approves decisions that have already been made. And so even though this big speech that I'm talking about is, it's in essence a summary of kind of broad brush party plans and decisions. But all of the debate on those things goes on before the Congress starts during the drafting process. And then even so that's in very limited circles. And so actually one thing that I think is really important this time around is that this crucial process of drafting the speech, which is when all the decision-making happens, was directly done under Xi Jinping's control. And you might say, well, isn't everything these days? But the thing is, I think this is a break from the past. 
past. So a decade ago and 20 years ago, on both occasions when the top party leader was stepping down, it was the incoming leader who was heading the drafting of this all-important document. And so this time around, instead, it was Xi Jinping himself who did that, which means that he would have been directly in control of the theme, the structure, the content, and things like whose opinions were being sought on this speech before it was brought to the Congress to be kind of ratified in this in this auditorium. And so I think that that means that the slightly more collective approach of the past decades has become even more rigid and closed, I would say. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I did wonder why the speech needed to be so long, but it, it covered a lot of ground, actually, starting with the ideology, and then there was quite a lot, actually, about Taiwan. The really striking comments were resolving the Taiwan question is a matter for the Chinese, a matter which must be resolved by the Chinese, he said. There were a lot of other areas that were touched upon in this speech as well, weren't there? It's a comprehensive document and it's it's basically this specific document is meant to be the party's most authoritative word on all of the different policy spheres that it covers and so policymakers in China are supposed to make concrete policies in the spirit of this document which is why it's so practically important for policy researchers like myself to be um, paying attention to it but uh, the, the part about Taiwan that you mentioned for example is something that really needs careful kind of expertise of people who've followed this discourse for many, many years um, and will be able to, you know, in, in comparison to kind of former uh, past reports and in comparison to a whole canon of documents and speeches and other things, be able to kind of glean something about Beijing's plan. So it's, it's always kind of uh, sensible, I think, to take a while to kind of settle and, and, and look at this from through kind of eyes that, um, have already been over the, the context of, of all of those other documents so that we don't kind of assume that there's something different about this speech where it might not actually be there. Um, and then in this, this present document, there was also a new section on science and technology and education, and then another one on security. So again, people whose research looks specifically at those fields will be looking closely at what they say as compared to, to, to the past. That's a very good point, Sarah, actually. Um, before the uh, Congress took place, I was in a meeting uh, with Dr. Yu from um, Chatham House, and she said, well, when it comes to Taiwan, we need to listen out whether the phrase peaceful reunification is used, because if the word peaceful is removed, that might suggest a change in tone. So, of course, I had my ears pricked up to the English translation of the speech. And what Xi Jinping actually said was that China would never allow itself to let go of the possibility of using force, but was still committed to peaceful reunification. So the language really matters, doesn't it? The language does matter. And again, I'd say that from my perspective, as somebody who kind of tries to, I, I do focus a lot on discourse, but not specifically on Taiwan. So political discourse in the Chinese system is incredibly important. And I think one of the reasons for that is that this is a single party system. And so unlike in a multi-party democracy where one party will quite blatantly kind of um, say bad things about what the other party has been doing, you, you don't get the same thing in, in the single party system. And so you sometimes have to use the same language that has gone before you um to kind of subtly mean different things but then maybe that's not the case so it's a, it's a really 
incredibly difficult thing to try to um, follow discourse and, and try to um, figure out whether or not there are, there are changes that are meaningful. This speech by Xi Jinping started with quite a lot of stuff about ideology. And I was speaking to the China expert, Charles Parton, who's going to come on this podcast soon. And he said it's important to take note of the ideology because the overarching ideology of the Chinese Communist Party has real effects on the ground. It underlines Marxist-Leninism as the foundation of the party. What do you think about this idea that Marxist-Leninism is still China's overarching ideology? Yeah, it's great that you'll have Charles Parton on. I'm sure that your subscribers are going to love listening to him. He's brilliant. Um, so I think actually this is a really good question for trying to understand why this mammoth document at the party congress is treated as being so important. So this is not like the American State of the Union address. This is a, a gigantic document that's been created over months and months, almost a year. And then it will be, importantly, it will be studied and theorized for over months and months after the Congress closes. And the question is, why is it treated like that? And so that comes to your question. The, the Communist Party's always maintained this principle of Marxist-Leninism, which goes by the clunky name of historical and dialectical materialism. And what that means is that the party claims that it, and only it, commands this scientific method that enables it to make correct assessments on the state of the world, on Chinese society, and indeed what the party needs to do in order to take that in a, in a what the party sees as a positive direction. And so at the Congress that's happening as we speak, the party is making the case for what it calls Chinese style modernization. I think in the English translation, they just use Chinese translation, uh, Chinese modernization. So Chinese style modernization, I think is the party attempting to define modernization. So it's like setting the limits, determining the space and defining parameters for what Chinese modernization should look like according to the party's worldview. But then I, I wouldn't say that this is China's overarching ideology necessarily. I'd say that this is the line that's upheld by the party. And then the, the party's decisions, which are based on this quote unquote scientific method of Marxist-Leninism, they seep into and shape law and government policy. Well, I think you've achieved something special there, actually, which is I know there are books downstairs in the SOAS library on the subject of historical and dialectical materialism, but it's such a boring title. I've, I've never looked at any of them. However, you're beginning to explain something important, which is this is the lens through which the Communist Party views the world with an apparently scientific approach. Um, I also want to talk about the constitution of the party because that's been on the agenda. Uh, and it might seem a bit puzzling, really, that the constitution would even need to be reconsidered or revised. What's going on? Right. So the party's got its own constitution and it's had that since just about when it was found, first founded in 1921. And it's actually the, the 100th anniversary of the formal constitution, which was made in 1922, this year. And so I, I usually call it the, the party charter to distinguish it from the actual constitution, which is the fundamental document of the whole legal system. So to make that distinction, um, 
And so what the party charter does is it tells you what the party is, tells you what its aims are, what its power structures are like, tells you how you can become a member and what your obligations are once, you're, once you are a member. But it's actually typical for the Congress to amend the charter every five years. And that's partly to do with the way that the party operates. And so based on these so-called scientific assessments, it adapts what it thinks the party's aim should be, what its goal should be, what its main political task is, and then how it should operate. You know, it can kind of adjust or tweak or sometimes make big changes to the way that it operates in order to achieve those things. So to finish up with then, as you rightly said, this is a, an event which is going to lead to uh, a great deal of study in China and internationally for a long time to come. Uh, particularly uh, the long speech by Xi Jinping at the beginning. What are you going to focus on? What do you want to learn more about uh, as a result of uh, listening to this Congress? Well, personally, I will be looking at the whole thing very closely. But as I just mentioned, I'm particularly interested in the relationship between the party and the state. And so the reason for that is that the party has its notion of how it should lead, right? Its leadership over the over the state. And that's kind of changed a little over time, not necessarily in a linear way. And that has, I think, a, a real bearing on policies that we see coming out of Beijing. And it has a has a bearing on the way that policies are implemented, I think, as well. So there's sometimes this kind of interplay between. The, the party documents, the party's policies, and the state ones. And sometimes the party's policies can create these kind of uh, perverse incentives that mean that, that state documents don't necessarily uh, get implemented as they were initially attended, even intended, even if they came out of the, the central government, right? And so what I'll be looking for, especially at this Congress, to try to see whether the party really is doubling down on this trend that it has rolled out, especially since 2017, where it's kind of amalgamated or, or melded together the party with lots of the state mechanisms and state organs and kind of to, to see how the party is kind of really changing the system of Chinese politics and policy making from within. That's, that's what I'm fascinated in. Well, I hope you'll come back and tell us the uh, results of your research on the podcast. Thank you, Holly. That was Dr. Holly Snape, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow, on the line from Scotland. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research on our website. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.